Amen. Please be seated. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Paul's letter to the Galatians. Our study will focus upon the first five verses of this wonderful letter that Paul wrote. Likely the first letter Paul wrote as an apostle. Paul's letter to the Galatians has been rightly called the Magna Carta of Christian freedom, Christian liberty. Galatians is written to defend against legalism. I want to be clear. What is legalism? I mean, the thesis of this book strikes at the heart of a legalistic understanding of our relationship with God. Legalism. Legalism simply is trying to attain or maintain rightness, or you could say righteousness, with God by human effort. That's what legalism is. Trying to attain or maintain righteousness or a right relationship with God by human effort. And in the church at any given time, numbered among us, there are two kinds of legalists. There are hardcore legalists. Those people who truly believe in the end their good will outweigh their bad. That they've done enough good that God will take it into account and take them into heaven. That's a hardcore hardcore legalist. That person isn't a Christian. They think they are. They may be numbered among those in the church, but they're not Christians. They trust in something other than Christ for their salvation. Then there's another kind of legalist, the kind that I am. That's a recovering legalist. Don't laugh, because you are too. We are all strugglers with our performance, with God accepting us based on what we do. Now, I know at this point, if you have trusted Christ... You would not say that you trust something else to save you. But you think in your core that there are things you do that maintain God's love for you. That's legalism. The idea that if you follow certain rules, if you're at church every time you should be and do other good things, if you do them, then God loves you just a bit more. That's legalism. Because it's human effort, human works that we think maintain our righteous status with God. That's legalism. In Galatians writes to the hardcore legalists that they be saved and to the recovering legalists so none of us escape. Galatians forcefully fights for the gospel of grace. Hear God's word. Galatians 1 verses 1 through 5. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. In all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. Father, I pray to ask you, for grace as we begin this study of Galatians together as a church family. I pray as one recovering legalistic Pharisee preaching to other recovering legalistic Pharisees who sometimes think that our efforts are part of what saves us or that our performance somehow makes you love us more. Lord, help us to see there is a way out of legalism. And that way is called the gospel. Father, when we are often tempted to forget that Christ is all we need. 
and such times, even now, help us to discover afresh the gospel of your free grace as so clearly revealed in the book of Galatians. It is in the name of Christ, the only one who can save us. We pray. Amen. Very simply, we learn from Galatians that in Christ there is true freedom. In Christ we are free from the wrath of God for our sins. We are free from the penalty that we deserve for our sin. We are free from the power of sin over us. We are free of the burden of guilt that is heaped upon us bearing our own sins. In Christ we are now free from the load of stress upon us that tells us we must perform in order for God to love or accept us. In Christ, we are free from keeping rules to earn God's favor. In Christ, we are free and are no longer encumbered by anxiety, wondering, will God love us? Will God accept us? Will God save us? Will God keep us eternally secure? In Christ, there is freedom from all these life-destroying weights and burdens. And this is why Paul writes to these young believers. And it's why it's important for us today. It's what made James Boyce write in his wonderful commentary about this, uh, bringing the book into a thesis statement. Boyce says, Galatians asserts that only through the grace of God in Jesus Christ is a person enabled to escape the curse of sin and live a new life. Not in bondage or license, but in a genuine freedom of mind and spirit through the power of God. I'll put it to you very simply, my dear brothers and sisters. In Galatians, we are once again reminded that the cross of Christ is the only way we can be right with God. And that the Spirit of Christ is the only way a person can obey God. Let's consider the author and the audience of this book. Look at verse 1. We're introduced to the author, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. It is the Apostle Paul who writes, not Saul of Tarsus any longer. He met the risen Christ, which is a requisite to be an apostle. You must meet and be commissioned by the resurrected Christ. But, of course, Paul, seeing Jesus personally later than the other apostles, came under a certain amount of scrutiny by various leaders and churches saying, hey, he wasn't one of the originals. And so in several epistles, he writes to defend his apostleship. And wonderfully, the other apostles defend his apostleship as well. Peter defends Paul in his apostleship. And you see this throughout the New Testament. But here again, Paul asserts that he's coming to the Galatians as an apostle. One who's sent by God, who is a messenger of God, a spokesperson for God. Like the prophets of the Old Testament, the apostle speaks for God. Notice where his authority comes. It says, an apostle, not from men, nor through man. So his authority does not come from a human institution, for some, from some leader. It's not from men or through man, second part of verse 1, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. Christ and the Father on even level commission, Christ, commission Paul to be a spokesperson for God and his will. Recognizing this in verse 2, and all the brothers who are with me. There is a recognition of Paul's apostleship based on those who are serving with him. So he doesn't just declare himself apostle. The church recognizes him as an apostle. Spokesperson for God. The author is the apostle Paul. Who is he writing to? He's writing to the Galatians. 
It says in the second part of verse 2, to the churches of Galatia, there had been volumes debating which Galatians were written to. There's two portions of Asia Minor that you could argue were the churches in Galatia. I found no good reason to worry about specifically where they are. Probably the southern port of Asia Minor. Uh, there's several churches that make up this area of Galatia, and they're churches, multiple churches. He's writing to them in general. Three times we know in the book of Acts he went through an area called Galatia, shared the gospel, churches were planted. He visited there twice after the original planting of the church. In fact, as we consider what he says here to the Galatians with Acts chapter 15, which is called the Jerusalem Council, we can piece together the situation who he's writing to just a little bit. We know that probably around 45 to 47 A.D., Paul goes on his first missionary journey. He preaches the gospel. Uh, people come to Christ. Churches are planted in Galatia. Then he goes on to other places, other uh, missions. But then come 50 or 51, there is a council called in Jerusalem to correct some error that had come into churches. And the error was simply this. There were people who of the old Jewish faith who would come in and say to these new Christians, you can't just trust Christ and be saved. You, you've got to also go through some of the old rites that we had to go through. Circumcision, following the law. And this came to a head in a few locations. And so they went to Jerusalem, Paul being one who went to Jerusalem for a ruling on this. And the council agreed, the apostles, the elders, that the gospel is Christ alone. You don't add to Christ, it's Christ alone. So go back and teach the Gentiles, when they come to faith, they don't have to be circumcised in the old Jewish way. And so then we read Galatians, and we see that's the very issue that he's dealing with. It's legalism in general, it's adding to what Christ has said, a human work, a ritual, a right to be saved. Circumcision in particular. So it seems as though Paul plants the churches, and not three years later they are already sliding into legalism. It's confronted in Acts 15, and now Paul writes this letter to correct them. The Galatians. Well, it's not just to the Galatians, dear brothers and sisters. This is written to us, the church today. In those days, the Judaizers were attempting to base their justification, that is, their righteousness before God. They were trying to base it on their sanctification. That is, they were trying to base their rightness before God by how they lived, by what they did. Instead of allowing their life to be based upon what God had done for them. Big difference. Big difference. Today we struggle with the same thing. How do we relate with the Galatian churches? Well, we're not debating uh, the addition of this particular right. How do we relate then? Well, the problem of the Galatian church is the number one problem for all believers. Legalism. How do you know if you're a legalist? Well, let me give you a few diagnostic statements. If some of these or all of these apply to you, you're at least a recovering legalist, maybe a hardcore legalist. First, you think God's love for you depends on what you do. Second, you try hard to obey God and it irritates you that others think they can get away with avoiding the same level of dedication. You're a legalist. You feel guilty when you haven't prayed enough or spent enough quiet time with God or witnessed to enough people. You think God is predisposed to be angry with you because of your sin. Your main goal is to try and gain God's favor by doing things that will please Him. 
Your sense of spiritual well-being is linked to some Christian leader or membership in your church. Notice, none of these things are wrong on their own. It's the idea that these things gain something with God. Make Him love you more. Credit something to your account. That's the problem. But there's more. How about this one? You might be a legalist if. You tell your children not to do something in church or in front of other Christian families that you'd allow them to do it in your home. I don't mean the climb in the furniture. You know what I mean. We all know what we mean. You believe the exterior choices a person makes in what they wear, their hairstyle, their piercings, their tattoos, that's a clear indication of that person's spiritual character. You sometimes worry that people might take advantage of grace if it's preached too much. People might think they can do anything they want. How about this? After being around Christians for a while, you feel drained, weary of putting up a false front. Any recovering legalists, don't raise your hand. When you miss a church service or activity, you feel guilty. You think you will likely get into heaven, even knowing you are far from perfect, but you've tried to be basically a good person, and God will take that into account, surely. How about you know you're not perfect, or even as good as you could be, but compared to the guy next to you, you're pretty good. If any of these descriptions, or even part of them, fit you, you're battling legalism at some level. Maybe you're a hardcore legalist who isn't a Christian yet at all. Maybe you're a recovering legalist who struggles with trusting in self at some level. In either case, from the very start of this letter to the Galatians, Paul addresses our chief needs from the very beginning. Let's start looking at verse 3, and we see what we need to recover from legalism. Verse 3 says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Our most basic need is for grace and peace. And he starts almost all his letters with grace and peace to you. It's a, it's a pronouncement or a prayer to God and be uh, half of the people to whom he's writing. Grace is God's undeserved favor shown to people who actually deserve his wrath. He's praying for grace. And this grace, which is God's undeserved favor, grants us real peace. Grace and peace, great need we all have. It's the need we have. We need God's grace. That's the only thing that gives us peace. Peace is being settled with the situation. It's being comfortable. It's being at ease with the state as it is. Only God's grace can truly produce that. Striving is caused by a lack of grace. Being still. Being settled. Secure. Grace and peace. Stop striving and rest. Be still. Know that he is God. This is what Paul says first. Basic need. But he goes on. Look at verse 4. There is much in verse 4. One simple verse says, Who gave himself for our sins, referring to Christ, to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. Philip Ryken, in his wonderful commentary, lists four truths that we learn from verse 4 that I'll share with you now. Just from verse 4, which gives us a right understanding of the gospel. This is the most fundamental need for all of us recovering legalists and those who need Christ as hardcore legalists 
a right understanding of the gospel. And verse 4 gives it to us. And then it unpacks it throughout the rest of the book. Look at verse 4 with me. First we learn from verse 4 of Christ's willingness to give himself for us. Christ was willing to do this for you. It says in verse 4, who gave himself for our sins. Jesus pointedly, particularly, purposefully gave himself for you. It's true. In the Passover sense of Christ giving of himself, he's a victim. Put on the cross. No question. But in reality, behind that, we know that it was the will of God to crush him. He gives himself. Willingly. It was a voluntary sacrifice. No one took Jesus' life from him. He says in John 10, as the good shepherd, I lay my life down for the sheep. He willingly gave himself. Not because you did something to earn it, but because he willed to do it. This is what's wonderful about the particular words of Matthew when he describes Jesus dying. Yes, this act... This victimizing of Christ that's so vivid. But in reality behind it, what does Matthew say? Jesus yielded up his spirit. Didn't say his spirit was taken from him. He yielded up his spirit. He was willing to die for you, for us. That's the first step of understanding the gospel, right? It was Christ's willingness to give himself for us. But secondly, in verse 4, we also see that Christ's purpose in giving himself for us was to pay for our sins. It says who gave himself in verse 4, for our sins. He purposefully paid for them. And let me be clear, Jesus was not just an example of sacrifice. He was the sacrifice, the atonement for my sin. Personal and particular, not just a general uh, inspiring story of one who sacrificed. No, he became the sin offering for my sin. Jesus took up all my sins, all your sins, on himself, gave me his righteousness. God looked upon him. He became a curse to God. God turned from him on the cross. You would expect the earth to grow black as it did, is the wrath of God is poured down on the sin offering Christ. He paid for my sins on the cross. He paid for every one of your sins. One sins that you are now thinking of committing, he paid for those. Personally and particularly on the cross. His purpose in giving himself was to pay for our sins. Listening to the offertory, the beautiful song, Rock of Ages. Think of the line that Toplady says so well. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? In other words, my zealousness could be at its height and never rest. Even if that were the case, could my tears forever flow? I could cry forever. All for sin. They could not atone. Thou must save. And thou alone. Christ's purpose in giving himself was to pay for our sins. The effect of Christ giving himself for us is also in verse 4. Much in just one verse. To deliver us from the present evil age. He pays for our sins by his willingness to deliver us. The effect of Christ's atonement is deliverance. To deliver us from this present evil age, in particular, noted here. The gospel at its root is a rescue from slavery to this temporary evil age. 
And note that he's not saying that he is extracting us from the present evil age. In fact, we have just studied John 17. Remember what John prayed, or Jesus prayed in John 17? Father, don't take them out of the world, but keep them from evil. So rescuing us from this present evil age very clearly means to rescue us from the thought, the current, and the course of this evil world. The blindness of this world that, like dumb sheep, are going over a cliff. We're rescued out of that. We're not in that stream anymore. We can now see with full vision and know what we're saved from. This is why Paul writes to the Colossians, God has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. Being caught up in this world happens in the church all the time. In fact, Paul's writing to Timothy about a particular individual who was in love with this present age. He says to Timothy, Demas has deserted me, Paul writes, in love with this present age. We've been delivered from this present age. In Romans 12, do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Deliverance from the present evil age means freedom not to think like this age. Deliverance from this uh, present evil age means to release us from our bondage to the course and current of this world's corrupted sinful affairs. If anyone is in Christ, Paul writes elsewhere, he or she is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. In the gospel, we have new life with new powers and new ways. God has broken this evil age to deliver us from the present evil age. But also look at verse 4. There's something else we learn. The origin of Christ's commitment. This is crucial to our right understanding of the gospel. We have to see that Christ is willing to see his purpose is to forgive our sins. And the effect is to deliver us from this present age. But note the origin of all of this is a commitment to give himself for us. It says in the last part of verse 4, according to the will of our God and Father. Christ's work on the cross wasn't some unforeseen tragedy or accident in history. Christ's work on the cross was the fulfillment of Christ's eternal purposes. This is why, as Peter is boldly preaching about the death of Christ, he says to the crowd there gathered in Acts 2, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Things appear to have their own course, but don't be mistaken. God controls these events. The gospel is rightly understood only through these lenses. That it is God's will, His commitment. The origin of the gospel, the good news, is in God's choice. The cross is not a reaction. It was God's plan to save a people for Himself, to show forth His glory. Verse 4 vividly reminds us and reveals that salvation is all about God. I hope we see this. The gospel is all about God. The first step in recovery for legalists is to recognize you had nothing to do with it. And you still don't have anything to do with saving yourself. And any time we think we do, we're back into legalism. It's all about God. This has not mentioned anything about us yet. This is simply telling us what God has done. The gospel has nothing to do with our works or earning anything before God. You remember that Martin Luther himself came upon these truths. This is what God used to bring him to faith in Christ. He called the book of Galatians his Catherine von Bora. You know who Catherine von Bora was? His wife. This is my wife, this book. My helpmate. This is what keeps me where I need to go. He said that this doctrine of the justification of the believer by faith alone in Christ, the idea that we would be justified before God is only through faith in Christ, in his work, 
He thinks that this doctrine, he wrote that this doctrine can never be taught, urged, and repeated enough. Salvation is all about God, and therefore, verse 5 tells us that all the glory goes to God. To whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. It doesn't say not, it doesn't say some of the glory be to God. It doesn't say most of the glory. The glory. All the glory that could be is to God. Not even a little to us. All to God. You see, that's the gospel. That's good news. D.A. Carson says it well. The Christian way stresses what God has done rather than what sinners do to bring about salvation. There can be no improvement on the divine action by any human achievement by way of either ritual observance or moral improvement. The cross is the one way of salvation. And no part of Scripture makes this clearer than Galatians. So in effect, when I go down the road of my legalism, I am doing my best in my sin to cheapen the cross of Christ by thinking I can earn something with God when it's all been earned by the cross. I am fly in the face of God's grace when I say that I bring something. How important do you think this is today? How important do you think it was to Paul? How important do you think it is that Paul confronts legalism the way he does? He wrote to some messed up churches. Thirteen books in the 27 New Testament he wrote, and they're all messed up churches. Just like us. But something about Galatians is different. The core of their error is so crucial that he writes differently to them. Sit and listen for a moment. I just want to close by reading a few lines at the beginning of various epistles that he wrote, and then bring it down to close with Galatians opening that we've just read. Colossians, he writes to the churches at Colossae. He says, much like he begins this epistle, Paul, an apostle of Christ, the will of God, Timothy, our brother, the saints, faithful brothers of Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Grace and peace again. Listen to what he says. We always thank God the Father our Lord Jesus Christ, of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. Very personal, cares deeply for the Colossians. Romans, doctrinal book, right? He says, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace, he says, just like he says to the Colossians and to the Galatians. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness whom I serve with, with my spirit and the gospel of his son that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers. What pastoral words from Paul to the Romans. Philippians. Similar intro, then he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy. Thessalonians, his heartfelt words, we give thanks to God always. Just verse 2, we give thanks always to God for you, constantly mentioning you in your pra- our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love, he says to the Thessalonians whom he loves. The Corinthians. We want to talk about a messed up church. The Corinthians. Some bad stuff was going down in Corinth. Listen to what the pastor Paul says. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ 
was confirmed among you. Grace had worked in a messed up situation and showed forth the gospel. And he writes it with such personal love and care and compassion. Then he comes to Galatians, where the problem is legalism. We read, grace to you and peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Verse 6. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. You are choosing to go to hell is what you're doing. That's what he's saying in a most practical human sense, pastorally. Cuts right over. Do you know what you've just done? You've departed from the gospel. Verse chapter 3, he begins in wonderful pastoral form. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Do you think addressing legalism is important in the church? The gospel is at stake. So yes, it is. In Christ, there is true freedom. Christ, we are free from the wrath of God against our sin. We're free from the penalty of sin. Free from the power of sin over us. We are free from the burden of guilt that our sin brings and weighs us down. We're free from the load of stress that tells us that we must perform to be loved and accepted by God. We're free from keeping rules to make God love us. We're no longer encumbered by the anxiety, wondering if God loves us, if God will save us, what our eternal future will be. We are free from these life-destroying weights and burdens. And guess what? By the Spirit of God, we're free to love, serve, and obey Him. Let us pray. Father, as our congregation begins this new study of Galatians, liberate us from our legalism. For the hardcore legalists here today, I pray that you would unshackle their hearts by your grace today. Give them a clear vision of the uncrossable chasm between them and you and make them to trust Christ alone for their eternal salvation. Make them to have no confidence in their goodness or ability to keep rules. Save the hardcore legalists today by your grace through faith in Christ. Lord, for the many recovering legalists here along with me, I pray that you would give us a fresh understanding of the totality of your gospel. Empower us to stand anew in the freedom with which our Lord Jesus Christ has set us free. Please do this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.